welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss mystical works of literature and how they relate to recovery. We hope you enjoy today's podcast episode. Hello, this is Buddy C. Welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. Today, we'll be talking about the 10th verse of Tao Te Ching. We have Amy and Drew and Craig and Sensei, we're glad to have you today. So maybe you can shed some Zen light on this 10th verse. And then you have a guest as well, correct? Happy to be here. Yes. Uh, Say gets is his Dharma name. What's it mean again? It means star and shining moon. Star and moon. And uh, he's from, uh, he was in Jacksonville. He uh, started the center in Jacksonville for us. Then he's moved back to Peachtree City. So he's in Atlanta, and he's at the Zen Center for this month as a resident priest in training. So I thought it'd be fun to do it from here tonight instead of from home, so we could both show you our ugly mugs. Welcome. We're glad y'all are here. Tell them a little bit about yourself. Um, Well, I ran into Hojo about 35 years ago, and... uh, not with his car. Not, not with the car, but at the Atlanta Soto Zen Center. And what he had to teach was very important to me. And I'm one of his slowest students, but I'm kind of getting the hang of it now. <laughs> <laughs> it's much better to be a slow horse than a fast horse. Yes. When the slow horse gets it, they really get it. <laughs> That's good. Thank you. Glad you're here. Matt, we're going to be talking about the 10th verse today. Uh, Sensei is going to be uh, sharing on the 10th verse. So we'll uh, make you aware of that. So, Okay, let's get started. Amy, you want to uh, read for us, please? Sure. This is verse 10 of the Tao Te Ching by Jonathan Starr. Hold fast to the power of the one. It will unify the body and merge it with the spirit. It will cleanse the vision and reveal the world as flawless. It will focus the life force and make one supple as a newborn. As you love the people and rule the state, can you be free of self-interest? As the gates of heaven open and close, can you remain steadfast as the mother bird who sits on her nest? As your wisdom reaches the four corners of the world, can you keep the innocence of a beginner? Know this primal power that guides without forcing, that serves without seeking, that brings forth and sustains life, yet does not own or possess it. One who holds this power brings Tao to this very earth. He can triumph over a raging fire or the freeze of winter weather. Yet when he comes to rule the world, it's with the gentleness of a feather. Hmm. Okay. Sensei, I think that is a description of day, T-E, as in Tao Te Ching, is what Jonathan Starr talks about. I looked at his notes, and I'll just share this really quick before we start, because this will, I think, shed some light on this. Uh, He says that this is talking about the day, which translates virtue, power, character moral force, truth, integrity. Each of these words reflect some aspect of day. And 
the combination of them all suggests a fuller meaning of this mysterious principle. When the absolute formless principle of the universe, Tao, operates in one place through a particular form, it becomes day. Um, I'm going to go ahead and finish this real quick, if you guys don't mind. And if you have the Jonathan Starr commentary, I'm on page 260. I know Craig has it. So uh, it's the fullest expression of life. Talking about day, as in Tao Te Ching, uh, which naturally reveals itself as moral excellence, generosity, kindness, unconditional love, selfless action, and spontaneity. Days embodied in the sage and his actions. And it's interesting here. They said that the Chinese pictograph for day is comprised of three symbols. The first one is ten eyes and a curve which means flawless, perfect, not curved in the least. The explanation is that 10 eyes, that if 10 eyes look on something and find no curve or fault, the observed thing must be perfect. The second pictograph is a human heart. Uh, represents human, uh, higher human feelings, moral rectitude, one who does not deviate from the truth. And the third pictograph is a foot taking a step forward, which means to go, to walk, and signifies action, movement, and expression. So day is not so much perfect heartedness, but it's expression and the action that gives rise to it. Day literally means perfect hearted action, action which does not deviate from the heart, the flawless expression of the heart or perfect action based on love. And then he goes on to talk about that day is similar to, he says to the Indian concept of Dharma, which you talk about often and the Christian concept of grace, that day would be similar to grace uh, or the power that comes to one who follows the will of God. St. Augustine said, first love, then do what you will. Uh, this, and when there is love, one's actions reflect those of the universe itself. One's actions are virtuous, righteous, noble, perfect, and always in harmony with the truth. I think I remember Joko Beck from our study on that, that she said that when um, I believe she said, if I remember it correctly, that when you get rid of selfishness, that all that's left is love. Uh, that, uh, and of course she said you get there through sitting. And so, um, I thought that was a good background on day. So we're interesting, interested in hearing your comments and say, okay, well, I'll just jump in first, uh, from a Zen perspective, Taoism, of course, uh, when, uh, Bodhidharma went to China and, and uh, transmission of Zen through China, uh, certainly picked up um, Taoist influence along with uh, Confucianism and some others. Um, but my, my, and I think we've talked about this before, my basic impression of the difference between the two, uh, they both look at life as kind of a test. In Taoism, I think the idea of the Tao, the great way, and the word way with a capital W is often used in um, 
Buddhism, and they'll often say the Buddhist way. Uh, and so I think I, I don't think they mean to separate the Buddhist way from the the Dao, way of Taoism. This difference is very subtle, I think. That in Taoism, um, the way is the way of nature. The law is so that's that's its relationship to the term dharma. Dharma means law, like the laws of physics or the law of how things work. Dharma has a lot of meanings. I'm, I'm sure Tao does too in, in, in China. But um, the individual person uh, can come into uh, harmony with the way, or they can go kicking and screaming, you know, into that dark night. They can resist all the way. And if you come into harmony with the way, that means you suffer a lot less. So they're similar in that Buddhism has the Four Noble Truths and says, this is the way it is, take it or leave it, existence of suffering and embrace suffering, etc. Um, and you you can mitigate to some degree suffering, but you cannot eliminate suffering, according to Buddhism. Sickness, aging, and death are built in. Uh, the mutually inflicted and self-inflicted suffering that we visit upon each other and upon the planet and the other species and so forth, that can be, that can be stopped, according to Buddhism, uh, through your own, through individual insight. The, the revolution in Buddhism is sort of begins at home and has a ripple effect. So Taoism, where it was a uh, not quite a Confucian, a Confucian social structure as such, it was more, I think, a portrayal of the natural realm of which human beings are part. And we have will or free, sometimes called free will. We can make decisions. We can decide to to conform to the way uh, once we begin to understand what it means or we can decide to resist and according to Taoism uh, it's futile you know to resist and a lot of the teachings in Buddhism point out the in Zen point out the futility of certain ways of trying to approach life and so our posture Zazen posture for instance is a posture of surrender you can't fight or, or run when you're sitting cross-legged and so on. So there's a lot of parallel con constructions. But I think in general, I would say the difference is that Zen is very much a program of personal action. And it begins with right meditation on the Eightfold Path. And that is the main method that is prescribed. Taoism, I think, is more a philosophical viewpoint of existence. And it would be closer, more closely associated with Dharma, with the teachings of Dharma. But I don't see in Taoism, not in these teachings anyway, we don't see a lot of reference to the idea of meditation and somehow a particular method or process for getting at this truth. It's more like uh, doing a headset adjustment. But let me, let me run through this uh, verse quickly. Um, the power of the one, it will unify body and spirit. The one is also mentioned widely in um, Chinese uh, Zen literature, in particular, Chan. Uh, you will, as long as you remain in 
one extreme or the other, you will never know oneness is a line from one of the early poems. But then the, the same poem goes on to say, uh, in this world of suchness, there's neither self nor other than self. And uh, so there's not two, rather than say we, that we assert that all is one. It's more the most we can say is not two. So Buddhism sort of addresses this issue of duality and non-duality as a, as a kind of a conceptual framework in which we are conceiving of things as opposites and dichotomies, etc. But in reality, we don't find them. What we find is complementary relationships between things like hot and cold, light and dark, and so forth. They define each other. And so there are no... According to Buddhism, there are no actual actual opposites, so there can be no one. Now, this this is said very clearly in in uh, the Xinqing Ming faith trust in mind. Toward the end, he says, "In this causeless, relationless state, no no comparisons or analogies are possible." So, uh, I think this is also making another point that I I want to make as a point of differentiation. Zen is kind of all about the observer. It's about you. And it's about your coming to a kind of insight into your the causes and conditions of your existence and indeed of all existence that is thought to be genuine. And uh, you can't get there intellectually. You know, it's a very difficult thing. But you can get there. And so... Uh, the, the teachings in, in Buddhism, and in Zen in particular, fall into two main camps, I think. One is a, is a description of reality from that perspective, from the perspective of somebody who's been there, done that, had, had some sort of profound insight. All of Buddhist teachings are like that. Mm-hmm. And the other uh, half of it is a prescription for practice. So then it moves into the social realm, and here's some practical things you can do, like meditation, you know, things like that. So here we're beginning to hear a description of reality from the perspective of an enlightened one. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says, no comparisons or analogies are possible in this causeless, relationless state. And this word state here is an English choice. The, the word in Chinese probably doesn't mean, it certainly doesn't mean static. This, this, uh, this mental, uh, this original mind that opens up in our through our insight through our practice is nothing is not static Uh, so it doesn't mean state in that sense as something permanent non-changing etc but nonetheless in this causeless relationless state and he goes on and says take motion in stillness and stillness in motion this is a famous old dichotomy in japanese or sino-japanese called mokurai uh, Matsuoka Roshi's second volume of collected talks is titled Mokurai after this. It's kind of like the resolution of opposites. It means stillness and thun- is thunder, silence is thunder. Uh, that's how we get our silent thunder name for our order. So he says, take motion in stillness and stillness in motion. Both movement and stillness disappear. When su- and he's talking about experience here, you know, direct experience, not conceptual. Uh, both movement and stillness disappear. When such dualities cease to exist, oneness itself cannot exist. This is what I'm saying. This is why we don't say all is one. 
Mm -hmm. We say the most we can say is not two. When such dualities, and he means all dualities, cease to exist, oneness cannot exist. Because if you think about it, oneness is a duality set up against the many, right? So, and he says, no uh, law or description applies to this ultimate finality. So, we take one provisionally, and it's used because why? Because people are lost in the many. You know, we're all we're all just completely gobsmacked, you know, in the multiplicity of everything. So Matsuoka Roshi said about halfway around the circle, 360 degrees in, around 180 degrees, you you get a sense of the underlying unity of everything. So that's what they're talking about. Okay. The, the one does not eliminate the many any more than the many eliminates the one. Somewhere in Taoism it says the the many return to the one. To where does the one return? And so the, the Zen answer would be not to. So if I understand you, Sensei, what you're saying is when we have the realization of the one, we realize we're already one, that there's nothing, no distinction to make at all. Yeah, nothing there's has no, changed. Right. Nothing, right. Nothing has actually changed. Okay. So, 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 but it's necessary to emphasize the one simply because everybody's lost in the many. Yeah. And then it, it goes on to say that this 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 uh, one will do all of these things. So that's equivalent to this uh, Chinese sage in Zen saying this causeless relationless state. You know, uh, if you if you arrive at this place, then it really solves all kinds of all kinds of problems in your in your life. And uh, when I first heard this bit about suppos and newborn. Um, when I first started sitting zazen, you know, your 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 first your legs hurt, your knees hurt, your ankles hurt. Uh, after a while, you sort of get used to it and you adapt. Your senses adapt. And uh, there's a, well, there's a time at which I was sitting in the zendo in Chicago, and uh, afterwards we turned around. I was there alone with Matsuoka. That's the way he did what we call dokusan or interview. You just sat with him off schedule alone. But basically did the same thing you did when you're there as a group. So I turned around. I, I got up from the sitting at the end. He'd struck the gong. And both feet were completely asleep all the way up to the knees. It was like buzz, 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 <laughs> you know. And uh, I turned around to step toward the altar. And my right toe, I couldn't feel my feet at all. So my right foot, my toe, I had socks on and it's carpet caught on the carpet and turned over and I actually stood on the top of my foot. And then I, then I collapsed and since they caught me, but my foot was so limber that it would actually turn backwards. It didn't sprain my ankle at all. So this bit about going supple as a baby is it's, it's referred to in Zen that way. If you, when you sit, your body becomes so supple, you can take your ankles and bend them around if, like a baby, you know, very literal huh. and there's a, uh, bunch, there's a bunch of other comments in here that i would make I think, compared yeah. to zen but i'd rather hear people's questions yeah craig's got a question for you since i'm reading this book called the original frontier oh i'm sorry i'm sorry i start again craig yeah i'm, I'm reading this book called the original frontier oh where'd so, you find that 
It's a fascinating read. It's absolutely fascinating. Of Turkey. <laughs> I'm kind of slow off the mark. I pick these books up and I think I, I put them into my reading list. And I picked this up for the past couple of days. And I'm, I'm really, really enjoying it. And just when you talking about the dualities, it, it reminded me about the part where you were talking in the book about the, um, the mind arises out of the body, which seems obvious, that the body also arises out of the mind is more challenging. Could I just ask you about that? Because I cannot get my head around that. I, I can see how the mind can come from the body because it is part right. of physical being. But I'm kind of struggling with the other part of it, that the, the body arises from the mind. Right. Could you maybe expand on that a little bit? Because yeah, it might I've, be I've not slept for a week thinking about this. <laughs> Good. It's beginning to work. <laughs> My current, the podcast I'm writing to to record now, the first bit of it went out last Monday, I think. This Monday, it's on the Shurangama Sutra. And I, I highly recommend the Shurangama Sutra to you to read. I wouldn't recommend it to just anybody. It's it's just a, a real, I told somebody, it's, it's a, you know, I, I'm pretty crude. Excuse my language. I come from a country situation here in Southern Illinois. I said, it's a real bitch. I said that to somebody the other day. And then uh, today I, I said, I amended my language. I said, it's a bear. And I said, well, actually it's a bitch. It's a bear with cubs. It's a mama bear with cubs. It's what it is. <laughs> and it's going to kill you. You know, the Shurangama Sutra is wonderful. It's very descriptive. He talks about the senses. My, you think my, my dissertation on deconstructing the senses is long, Wait till you read Buddha's dissertation just on vision. I mean, it just goes on and on, and it's just mind-boggling. So um, give me your question again. I went off a little there. It's what do I mean? Oh, I know. What? How does body rise out of mind? So uh, buckle up, you know, because Buddha goes ahead, ahead and says, actually, everything arises out of mind not just your body, not just the body. So uh, you have to start trying to get your arms around this sort of yogachara or mind-only idea that everything that exists is in codependent arising, including your consciousness and the universe. And so not only does your consciousness arise clearly from, from all the causes and conditions in the universe, but the universe also arises from your consciousness. Now you can reduce this to some simple uh, ideas, simpler ideas. Uchiyama Roshi, who is Kodosawaki's heir and then Okamura Roshi's teacher and Okamura Roshi did my formal ceremonies. Uh, Uchiyama Roshi says, your whole world is born with you and dies with you. Nobody has your world. Now, that doesn't mean, that's not meant to imply that when we die, the whole universe disappears, vanishes. It's just that there is nobody else that has your unique perspective, your unique dharma location in space-time. Yours runs down the center of your spine from the top of your head. That's your axis zero in space-time. Mine is here, so ours are not the same. But this, uh, this idea that reality rises from mind 
you would have to put a capital M on it. When you say mind rises out of body, you could put a smaller, a lowercase m. And you could say the analytical mind comes from the brain. The brain is the organ of the mind. The thinking mind, chitta, discriminating mind, just as the, the uh, objects of the of sight are vision, color, light, shape. The objects of sound are uh, sound waves in the air or in the water. The object of the sense of uh, touch is heat, cold, friction, etc. So each of the senses comprises what is called a dhatu or realm in which there's an organ, an object, and the field in which it occurs. When you come to the sixth sense in Buddhism, mind, it's also true, and the brain is the organ. But mind uh, seems to have a um, an escape hatch or something. It it can it can go beyond its apparent limitations. And for instance, uh, they're speaking of the power here, this uh, primal power that guides without forcing and so forth. In Buddhist circles, that would be akin to qi or qi in Chinese, qi, the, the life force. And the theory, theory in qi in the martial arts is and in healing, uh, process of Chinese healing and, and uh, Zen or Buddhist Zen healing is that the key of the body, the key is in the body, the life force is in the body, obviously, but the life force is also in everything in the universe. And the theory is, and there's some techniques, actually some methods for, for doing this, for working on this, the key of the body can tap the universal energy, the universal key. Sagat's here went through cancer at one point, and he had, he had to have some operations and things. And he and I went through uh, a chant called Hakuin, Hakuin, who's 18th century Rinzai master that you're probably familiar with, his Nikon Tanden chant. And it goes through this uh, visualization in which what you're doing is using your breathing to tap the key of the universe so that it enter, enters your body and heals. And you do that through the key of the body. So in each of these cases, you, you can say you have a personal power, joriki it's called. The power of others is called tariki. And you have a personal source of key, which we say is in the pit of the stomach. And that's what we tap when we're doing meditation. But that key can also, in a sense, tap the outer key of the universe. And so it can begin to flow through you. These are all like Chinese medicine, Eastern ideas. But if you if you try it, you find out it really works. And Sagas can testify to that. So to say that uh, body comes out of mind is one of those kinds of connections. Uh, you have to admit that mind and body are intricately interrelated. You can have a mental illness that causes you to be physically ill. Right. And uh, there's an, another part of this is that through the process of uh, gestation and being impregnated, gestation, conception, growth of the fetus in the womb and so forth, the mind is also present and growing. And so the two from their it's called uh, interdependent co-arising, the 12 fold chain.
is the way Buddha expounds this general theory of how everything comes to be the way it is. There is nothing that is not a cause. There is nothing that is not an effect, but it's not simple linear causality. They, they each mutually modify and create each other. So this, I think, is the way we understand body arising out of mind. Did you have anything about the key? Um, Hakuin had two very interesting things to, to say, and Sensei has just gone through one of those. But another is a visualization that uh, you led me to called the soul cream visualization, which is where you envision a healing medicine on top of your head. It's in the form of an egg, like a big ostrich egg. Yeah. And so you, you, if you visualize this, you sense it penetrating your skin, dripping down on your shoulders, going through the rest of your body. The egg crack, cracks. <laughs> uh, or my, my visualization was it was a chocolate Easter egg, <laughs> and so it just melted. <laughs> That's even better. <laughs> So you, you sense this coming through your entire body, going down into all of those areas that are really unhappy, sick, full of cancer. And you begin to see your body is completely interconnected. You're, you begin to see the cells in your body is making really lousy decisions, deciding <laughs> to, to divide without limit. And it gives you an opportunity to, to, if you will, talk to the cancer and persuade the cancer that if they continue or it continues in doing what it's been doing, that not only will it kill you, it's going to kill the cancer. So come on, guys, let's <laughs> find some way of living harmoniously together. <laughs> so I'm not sure where I got off they, on all this. So they probably had roots in Taoism and earlier earlier practices in India, like Vedic practices, but, uh, thank you. Thank you. Guys. Thank you. Sensei. Sensei you. used to, Matsuoka Roshi used to say, uh, mind and body cannot separate it and intertwine his fingers. And he'd say, uh, they are intricately interrelated, but it's not a matter of which comes first. It's not a first causes argument that mind comes first and then body or body comes first and then mind It's not like that. Codependent origination. And just while we're talking about the book as well, I've not looked at my seat in my van the same since I read the part about you talking about the understanding, would understand what goes on to intact the making a chair and its function. It's not just a chair. It's, so it's no longer a seat. It's no longer just something that I sit in. It's something that I can relax in. It's something that has so many different functions. And I'm just, I was just blown away when I was reading that part in the book and I said, you have to actually understand what it actually is. And I'm thinking to myself, how can people sit and design so many different chairs? It's a classic problem. You know, we don't really need another chair, but it's it's still a legitimate problem to, to take on. Sensei, I have a question. Does anyone else have a question right now? Craig's been kissing butt, complimenting uh, Sensei's book. So good job, Craig. <laughs> Uh, you're, you're buying a seat in two seat of heaven. <laughs> uh, any questions? That's going to cost you more. Uh, any questions, guys? Uh, since I, I was looking at this whole verse together about the characteristics 
that I'm seeing of, uh, I guess the, the characteristics of day, the characteristics of virtue, uh, someone who could love the people and rule the state and be free of self-interest could remain steadfast, like a mother bird, uh, could keep the innocence of a beginner, even though their wisdoms reached the entire world, they could guide without force to serve, you know. So that's a very big one in Zen, the, the, the beginner's mind idea. Can you expound on that a little? Because I think that's the I think so. gift in this. You know, we these things sound like Boy Scout Code of Honor or something sometimes when, when you read them. But what it's talking about is sort of getting over yourself and getting to the point that you don't see everything as transactional. You don't see as, you know, what can I get out of this? In Zen, you already have everything you can get. I mean, you know, the rest of it is sort of window dressing and trivial. Uh, that's, that's not a rationale for injustice or for inequality of income or anything. It's not saying, well, everybody should just be happy with what they have. It's not like that. It's more like, all the teachings of Buddhism are, are reflected back on you. They're, they're not held up to criticize others in society. So, uh, you know, if you can step back from that idea that this is a social movement or something, it's not. I think it's revolutionary, but it's, again, it's revolutionary on the personal level. It begins on the cushion with each individual. And there can be a ripple effect where it can affect everybody. If you become peaceful with yourself, patient on the cushion, then it's much easier for you to be patient with others. And uh, if you go all the way, uh, we say die on the cushion. It means you, you may, you could say you get to a point where you don't really want anything that you don't already have. I mean, you may want things to work a little better and you may want to have less aggravation or something, but Basically, you're okay uh, with things as as they are, with all of the suffering and everything that's built into existence. So in transactional situations, in social situations, you're not trying to get anything from from somebody else. So so you're already, I mean, they describe it in very glowing terms here as if it's something really, really extraordinary. But in Buddhism, it's not. It's just ordinary. If you it's commonplace. It's a, you know, it's, yeah, yeah it's, it's common. It's the natural, the natural way. Our meditation is the natural posture. Uh-huh. Our breath, we try to find the natural breath. We think eventually the natural state of mind will come about. And if you, if you become okay in your own skin and okay with your own set of circumstances, then you're probably going to be able to go into the social realm with bliss bestowing hands. You know, you're going to be, you're not going to be like most people that we see on TV where everybody seems to be competing for to get something and they often don't even know what it is. So, um, but that, that again, does not step aside from social justice. It doesn't use karma to make excuses or anything like that. It's just that, for you on the personal level, and this is why I'm saying Buddhism is different, Zen is different from Confucianism, uh, 
although Matsuoka Roshi would say the Zen person has no trouble following the sidewalks, is the way he put it. We, we don't have any trouble conforming because we're radical nonconformists in, at home or internally. So uh, the levels on which we can conform, unless, of course, there is injustice or people are waging war, are relatively trivial. Yeah. So it's a little like jihad in Islam. If you if you win the war within yourself, you know you're going to be capable of bringing world peace or bringing peace to a given situation because you are peace. Is this not a, just a description of acceptance of everything is as it is? Uh, no, no, you can't accept you know somebody burning your house down and attacking your family and stuff. No, I was you talking can't. about the, I was talking about this verse. Oh, this. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, um, yeah, I think so. The, the primal power is the power to live with things as it is. Yes. And, and the wisdom to be able to see how it is for, for Zen that comes from our meditation because what happens is, uh, when you sit still enough, long enough, what you think is not normal all starts to break down and you have kind of a, you have kind of, it's not a mental breakdown, but you have kind of a personality disintegration and then you can rebuild your personality on a better foundation. But that has to be done before you can engage socially. And that's what they're getting at here. This, this power that you find the power of the, of oneness. And again, it had limitations uh, semantically as we discussed. But if you truly um, assimilate that power, I call it key, or call it, 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 it's, it itself is neutral. It's, it can be used for good or bad. Uh, but if your intentions are such that you don't want to cause any harm, you know, do no harm, first precept, then this gives you the power to live that out in your daily life, regardless of circumstance. Do you think of this as being a, a description? It seems to me like talking about the primal force there, guiding without forcing, serving without seeking, brings right. forth and sustains uh, without owning or possessing. That could be a that's, description that's because, of... That's because everything's impermanent. That's because right. everything is... You, since they said it's round and rolling, slippery and slick. Yeah. You can't get hold of it. The more you try, like a wet bar of soap, it pops out of your hands. That's being the observer, right? Like you're talking about. Yeah. Taking the backward step, letting it come to you. Uh, quit chasing it. Quit trying to change it. Trying to influence it. Unless, of course, there's an emergency and you have to take action. But otherwise, um, it's what I meant by getting over yourself. Um, get out of your own way. Okay, I got I got a real important question for you, Sensei. What's the minimum number of minutes that I can meditate a day and make this happen? It takes uh, what is called a shana in uh, Sanskrit, K-S-A-N-A. It's the absolute smallest duration of time. That's what it takes. Can I just ask if I can pay somebody to do it for me? <laughs> You can try. You can pay me a lot of money. I'll see if I can do it. There is a guy uh, called Gimpo, I think. He was offering guaranteed enlightenment for $20,000. <laughs> 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 
payable up front, of course. <laughs> yes. The Soto's in Buddhist Association really stomped on him. It was very funny. He didn't mean it as a joke, by the way. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. I remember when I asked you how long I should uh, meditate, and I think your answer was as long as I need to, you know, something to that extent. <laughs> I'm like, that's not what I want to hear. I want the easier, softer way. I want to do this the easiest way I possibly can, like everything else in my life. You know, I, I coined the expression, sit still enough, long enough. Yeah. That's my expression. And of course, it begs the question, how still is still enough? How long is long enough? And the answer to both of those is, if you have any doubt at all, it's not enough yet. Right, right. <laughs> You'll know. You'll know for sure. But, but, you know, since I isn't, that's all I love in Zen that every, the premise is just sitting with no agenda, no, uh, goal. You just learn to sit. Uh, and for well, me, you, you end up, you end up having goals, but you, you, you sort of see through them and discard them. Right. I, exactly. I Say gets to answer a couple of questions here. He's in training. Oh. He has to get used to being on the spot. So okay. what I was going to say is for how long you should st sit, sit still enough, long enough, and something will happen. So when that something happens, send me a postcard. I'd like to have some <laughs> objective verification that what I said was true. <laughs> it's, it's, it is sit still enough, long enough for you. And that may take a lifetime. Matsuoka working at it. Matsuoka, you say, uh, sit until you forget there's somebody sitting. Mm. It's a natural thing. When you were a child, it was nothing for you to just go out and plop down on the ground and just sit there and listen to the bees and watch the wind blow. And, you know, uh, it's a little bit like a regression getting back to that sort of open original mind. It isn't so busy and doesn't have so many ideas. So that takes a little time because we're all carrying a lot of baggage. For, for me, that's very akin to being that observer you were talking about, yep. to, to learning to do that in more of my life. And if I can do that, then uh, I see a lot clearer and I don't stick my fingers in things I shouldn't. If I'm more of the observer, being the passerby, that was described in, uh, I think the book of Thomas described it as the passerby. Uh, yeah. And I it think doesn't that's mean disconnected or uncaring or unfeeling. Mm -hmm. It just means you have, uh, you know, kind of taken a back seat to um, always having to, you know, meddle with everything. Right. Exactly. So is, Thank you. Is, is that like practicing non-attachment? Yeah, but we have to be careful with that word. Um, mothers come into Dokusan, they say, I have kids and they drive me nuts. And I know I need to let go of that. And I said, no, I don't think that's what Buddha meant. You're a mother. You're just in for it. You know, you're going to suffer and get used to it. <laughs> but um, the non-attachment in Buddhism is to um, detach from our own opinion about everything. <clears throat> so it's not it's not necessarily manifest in any particular way so uh we don't try to avoid suffering we're in, we're just in for it it's just built in 
but we can detach from our own opinion of suffering as being bad, for instance, or even we can detach from pain as being suffering. That's why we let ourselves uh, sit beyond our comfort level when we sit in Zen. It's going to hurt a little bit. Yeah. So sink into it instead of trying to get away from it a little bit. You know, we don't we don't recommend anybody overdo it either. I've been recommending lately to people that if they're having pain, just keep move, keep bouncing when you're sitting. Don't sit still. And after you do that for a half an hour or a couple of half hours or a couple of days or whatever, you'll find that you can you can sit still because the pain comes mostly from resistance. Hmm. Again, sit down on a, on a clump of moss or something and sit there and bounce and look around, you know. If their legs start feeling cramped, they just move them, you know. So we're kind of returning to that innocent approach. Yes, from resistance, right, Amy? Pain from resistance, not from the pain itself. It's from resisting the pain. Mostly. Uh, mostly, yes. Huh. I would make a suggestion for anyone being I've gone to one multi-day retreat before you go, I would suggest sitting in a straight, uh, something that you have uh, like a stool or, or on the front of your chair for multiple periods of time to start getting your back used to being unsupported. Yeah. And maybe you won't hurt as much those first two days <laughs> with your back. Well, that's what happened to me. Do the rocking motion, rock back and forth. Left and right. That's what, Babies do when they first want to sit up there bouncing around. It's that's quite an experience. Um, I, I'm, I've got another one the first of July, so that's uh, you went to the last one at Watershed, yes, sir. And then we're going to, I'm going to the one, uh, the first week of July, yeah. Uh, so yeah. in a month or a little less than a, a month from now, actually. So, but, um any other questions for Sensei, guys? Because we pretty much covered the, the verse. And we had a good talk on meditation, too, and being the observer. And Well, I'm going to start calling people out here. <laughs> how about Drew? Hi, Sensei. How are you? Good. How you doing? This is Roger. Good. Roger. Hi, uh, Drew. Hi, Roger. I, I don't have any questions. I really enjoyed y'all's uh, y'all's topic. Um, I've have you got the book? I've, sorry, have you got the book, The Original Frontier? No, I haven't. Uh-uh. Yeah, got to get the book. Yeah. <laughs> well, if if Buddy could post a link to it in the Facebook group, then that would be great. Yeah, it's available on Kindle now. Oh, good. Okay, good. good. I have a Kindle. That's yeah. perfect. And uh, please write a review. They say the tipping point oh, well. is 35 reviews. We're somewhere between 20 and 30 now. More okay. reviews. I'll do that. And I also. If you, have, if you have any questions, just contact me by email and I'll be happy to answer your questions directly. And since Appreciate I'd like it. to take a month and um, one month, do questions from your book too. Once we that have. Would that would be fun. Um, but yeah. I do put you the link. Put the, you put the link in the chat. I put the link. I will, and I also put the link in the episode notes for the podcast. So anyone listening, the the link is in the notes for the podcast too. So I'll find the link and send it to to these guys as well. So is it still Matt, or is it Matt still? 
Hi, uh, it's Matt. Hey. Um, hey, Matt. Still Matt. Um, I haven't really got any questions. Uh, I have a comment uh, about the time it takes to sit. I guess it took me 50 years to get back to the point that I was at when I was five years old. Yep. I can now, I, I call myself still Matt, partly because it's still Matt, because there's so many Matts in AA. Um, yeah, it's still Matt. Uh, and I do like to be still. I like my mind to be still. Yep. I, like, I like the peace. Stillness is the secret. Some people say quiet meditation, quiet illumination, but there's nothing quiet about it. But it's becoming more and more still. I find now, though, it doesn't take me long yeah. if I'm at unrest just to sit and just to yeah. Yeah. clear my It is head. something that it's a comfort to understand that it is something you get better at. You can get good at meditation. It took me a long time and a long journey mm. to get to where I am now at 55. But uh, it's very important that I've got it right now because I'm actually in, in my third week now in, in hospital because they desperately tried to find out what the hell's going on. Uh, that thing they were said about the egg, I picked up something along the way somewhere uh, where I envisage a ball as I'm meditating. And I choose a colour. I chose aqua. And you move a ball up, you just let it dissolve, and that color flows through you. I find have that you ever peaceful. These, uh, have you ever seen these um, scans of the body that kind of show you a slice at a time? They can be done live. I mean, it's, it's not a, it's not a like a corpse. It's like uh, done in a mach MRI machine or something where they go through. I have. I, I, I went one. through. I went through a test at Emory, and I, you know, I, I can show you my brain on Zen, <laughs> slice right mm -hmm. down the middle. Um, the soul cream exercise that Roger was describing is kind of like that. You imagine it starting at the very tip crown of your head, and those of you sitting in meditation can try this. And if you want to talk about it more and get a little more detail, I'm actually thinking of trying to do a video where they put like a red line you know, like one of those uh, laser levels, you know, where you can see a red line and the red line will drift down my head like this at a very slow pace. And I will talk everybody through this visualization as it goes and goes all the way down and it comes back up to the middle of the stomach and bubbles and bubbles and bubbles. It's like a, a kind of a thoroughgoing thing. But uh, the soul cream is like that. It doesn't run down the sides of your head like melted chocolate would. It penetrates. It penetrates and it goes level by level. And, and you don't push it. You don't try to get it to go further. You wait until you feel it. So you feel the egg sitting there on the top of your head and then it breaks and then the stuff starts. And the cream inside is considered like an elixir. It's like... Um, you know, the elixir of the gods kind of thing. It has the most wonderful flavor, the, the, the most wonderful consistency, temperature. It's luminescent. It has the most wonderful viscosity and the fragrance. It's all, it's just perfect. And it, it seeps through your body like that, like one micrometer at a time. 
and you just sit there and feel it. And you let it go all the way down to the bottom. If you're sitting cross-legged, it goes all the way down to the bottom of your feet, which are crossed under you. And then it builds back up like any liquid would, and it's drifting through your body. And then the upper body becomes cooler and cooler. And the lower body is becoming hotter and hotter with the cream until finally it raises back up to the level of the belly button, the navel. And then it goes hotter and hotter and hotter until it's boiling hot. So right there at the pit of your stomach at your belly button, that's where it's boiling. And that's the end of the visualization. It's amazingly powerful. Thank you. But it sounds like the bowl that you're doing. You have an accent. What's your accent? Where are you from? I'm from England. Beautiful accent. Thank you. But Craig is not from England, right? Craig is. No, I'm from the better half of the country. I'm further up north. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's what I thought. The better part. You have a better accent. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> is this an accent competition now? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have an accent, right? I don't have an accent. I think Buddy's going to win. <laughs> Or the worst one. Uh, any other questions for Sensei, guys? Amy, you have anything? You've been quiet today, dear. Yeah, I've just been listening. But you know what I'm thinking about right now is is the the, the circle of life and how even as you know part of part of the journey, I guess part of the spirituality seeking is to get back to the childlike faith, you know, where it is just innocent, genuine acceptance of turn on the light switch and the lights come on, you know? Um, and, and this specific verse 10, you know, hold fast to the power of the one. It will unify the body and merge it with the spirit. It will cleanse the vision. You know, so much of the journey that I'm on right now is cleansing my vision so that I can just be back or in a new level of innocence right. and acceptance and awareness. When you do meditation, do you keep your eyes open or closed? It depends. I am not a very good meditator. We recommend keeping them, keep them open. Keep them open. Sit okay. facing a blank wall. Simple, simple okay. area. So there's not too much visual distraction. And then look into your vision, fixed gaze. Hmm. Keep your gaze fixed. It becomes part of the stillness. And, you, you know, you may start to see light color movement, stuff that's not, shouldn't be there. It begins to break down. You begin to, it's like an LSD trip. You know, you start to see what you're seeing with, basically. Well, maybe that's the whole key that I've been missing. See, maybe I'm keeping my eyes closed and I need to no, keep them no, open. No, don't keep them closed. <laughs> it's a cheap high and it's legal. Well, sign me up. Sensei, you may have just said exactly what I needed to hear to, <laughs> to increase that journey. You that's have great. to sit still enough long enough. Okay. Challenge accepted, I think. I think that's a challenge for me. Part of that is sit still enough long enough and something will happen yes <laughs> i did pick up on that earlier and i was intrigued by that comment as well sit there long enough until something happens and i'm gonna work on that if you think about it your whole sensorium is an electrical electrochemical uh, system right 
And what will happen is like building a charge on a capacitor. If you know what a capacitor is, it's where it's a piece of equipment where the current is coming in from one side and the capacitor is designed to hold only so much current. And then when it gets full, a spark jumps on the other side. And so it, it, that's how it becomes part of the machine network. So if you think of it like that, like you're building a charge on the system, right? The system is gonna to wanna to reverse. You're sending the same input in by sitting with fixed gaze facing, sitting still. It's the same input going in, in, in. It's building a charge. Matsuoka used to say, it looks like a mountain. Sitting meditation looks like a mountain. Actually, it's a volcano. So you think of the caldera building, you know, the, the energy building and building, and it's gonna it's gonna blow at some point. That's the cheap high. Roger, I got a question for you, sir. <laughs> yes. I know we have a lot of listeners that don't meditate, but would probably like to know how to start. For someone who was just beginning, how would you recommend they start? Um, what would you suggest for them? Um, well, there are a lot of forms of meditation. So it's easy to find a meditative practice that uh, is particular to one person. But what I would recommend is that you find a meditative practice that has some long-term life to it. It's not just a single practitioner who's saying, send me $10,000 and I will enlighten you. Yeah. Um, find someone who has done this for a substantial length of time themselves and can testify for themselves this is what I did, this is how I did it, and this is how I am connected to others who do the same thing. At home, you can just, um, if anybody just wants to sit on a chair, we recommend facing a wall, if not absolutely necessary, just for simplicity of sensory stimulus. You wanna keep the temperature moderate, the light level moderate, you don't want a big wind blowing through the room. Uh, just a peaceful place. Uh, and it's okay to sit outside, but believe it or not, outside is a lot noisier. And outside is a lot more distracting. So we usually recommend finding like a corner of your house someplace that you can sit. And uh, just start by sitting still for a while, sitting facing the wall, breathing deeply trying to find the natural posture. This is the way people sat around the campfire, cross-legged. You don't have to sit cross-legged, you can sit on a chair. But instead of leaning back and relaxing, perch on the front of the chair, sit up straight with your back, neck, and head straight, and breathe deeply. And once you've done that for a while, you can get up to five, 10, 15, 20 minutes of doing that. Most people sit, uh, when they wake up in the morning, they'll often sit before they go to bed at night. I even recommend sitting on the side of your bed. Just sit up on the side of your bed for a while. Uh, you might need a little pillow under you because your bed sags. Uh, that's better than nothing. And then what you find is your desire to sit longer grows. So you might find yourself making yourself a little corner somewhere where you can sit for half an hour or an hour. But the last thing you want to do is make it a must do. And if you're not doing it this way, you're not doing it right. Your body knows this posture. Your body knows this breath. 
You just have to give it a chance to recover it. And then you can move into more formal practice. You can go online and you can down, download uh, collateral material from our websites that give you illustrated instructions on how to do it with details and so on. We have the links and say in the, in all the episode notes, there are links to, to your uh, meditation training. Yeah. And that's already there. Free downloadable um, manual for home practice. And we have illustrated, um, you know, fold out posters that you can print and uh, they, they give you a lot of detail, more detail than you need right away. But I'm just saying, if you just start sitting uh, sit still for a while and breathe deeply and trust. It's called trust in mind. Trust that your mind knows what you're, what it's doing here. You don't have to have, as we say, we don't need no stinking teachers. You know? <laughs> there are three things to keep in mind. Your posture, seated upright. Yep. Your breath, starting breathing deeply from your abdomen and then paying attention to your breath from your upper chest and following the flow of air as it comes into your body. So it's posture, breath, and then the last and hardest is attention. Pay attention to what you're doing. Know that your mind is going to be asking questions like, why am I doing this? This seems particularly dumb. I'm not getting anything out of it. Your mind will just keep on spinning these objections. Monkey mind. Just observe that those objections come, but try not to pay attention to them. Just let them come and let them go. So if you sit still enough, as Cincy says, sit still enough long enough, something will happen. But it is good as you start to be able to have some comfort with that. But it's also good to be able to have someone else or some other group to sit with because that gives you encouragement that you're not the only person struggling through this and that you're not crazy. Yeah. And it's best to breathe through the nose and out through the mouth. Yeah. Just uh, for different reasons, because the uh, the breath passes over nerve passages and the nasal passages, Um, you know, it's more soothing. And the breath should be more like a sigh than a belabored breath, like a sigh of relief. And it's a good idea to, to just, uh, in a sense, not breathe. Just let your, let your lungs empty themselves and then just sit there for a while and see what your body does. Your body will start breathing. And so give up control of the breath. Just let follow it and let your body do it. Is there, is there a length of time that you should maybe breathe in, hold, and then breathe okay. out? Or not, am, not I, me, am I thinking too much? That's pranayama. That's controlling the breath. This is just following the breath. Your body knows the natural breath. You do want to empty the lungs and breathe as deep as you can. But you, what you might want to do, like you, when you're a child and you got upset, you might hold your breath and try to pass out. You know, it, it, experiment. Be experimental. If you can't sit for 60 minutes, sit 10 minutes six times a day. <laughs> Or is it six minutes, ten times a day? That's another one of my issues. I've, I've many, but that's one of my issues is consistency when it comes to these because I get to the stage where I've, I've done it a few times. I think I'm really good at this. I don't need to do it anymore. Consistency is not that important. None of the measurables are important. How long you sit, how often, how regularly, 
they, they, they're important in the sense that they can make a difference, but the main thing is simply to not give up. Find a way to trick yourself into doing this. I would say find a place where you can sit with, without yeah. much disturbance yeah. and make this your regular place to sit. It may just mean finding a chair and a spot on the wall and sit with a chair facing yeah. the wall. But do that as consistently as you can. Yeah. But, you know, if it's a couple of minutes, wonderful. If it gets to be longer, that's wonderful also. If you miss a couple of days, don't beat yourself up about it. Yeah. Just remember, oh, I was doing that here in this place and do it again. Yeah, Zen is something, the meditation is something we get to do. It, it's not something we have to do. Mm. We, get, we get to do it when we get to do it. Five minutes Buddha, Sensei was saying. <laughs> well, well, thank you guys. Appreciate gotcha. everyone today. We'll see y'all in a couple of weeks. Hello, this is Buddy C. I wanted to make you aware of several recovery-related resources that I've posted in the episode description. These resources include a list of recovery podcasts, a free sober meditation app, daily recovery email, shared Google recovery calendars. Hope you put some of these resources to use and have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends in recovery.